new ideas. Big debates. Meeting the change makers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. Today, a first for Health on the Line, although we hope it won't be a last. I'm delighted to welcome a member of the Department of Health's ministerial team. Lord Nick Markham was appointed Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Department of Health and Social Care just over a year ago on the 22nd of September 2022. Nick's had extensive experience across the public, private and voluntary sectors. Amongst his many other roles, previously he was Lead Non-Executive Director at the Department of Work and Pensions and Lead Non-Executive Director at the Department of Housing and Local Government and before that Deputy Leader of Westminster Council. Uh, Nick's also founder of Safe Haven, a social enterprise charity that provides homes for the homeless in London, which he is able to do through an innovative funding model, which effectively securitizes housing benefit. And then finally, last but not least, Nick's also got extensive private sector experience of roles, including ITV strategy director, CFO at Law Ashley and CEO of Top Up TV. But now, and this is why... I'm interested in speaking to Nick and particularly as Minister uh, for the Lords in the Lords responsible for NHS capital, land and estates, data and technology and NHS finance and lots of other things as well. But those are the issues I'm going to focus on. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I guess the first question is, is, is what have you learned? I mean, you've been in the role for, for 13 months. Uh, what, what have you learned in the role about the role, about the NHS? What's what surprised you over the last year? Yeah, as you could see from my background, I'm not a politician by trade. So, you know, I've been doing various business stuff for the last 25, 30 years. You know, I had obviously some links in terms of my non-exec roles to the departments you mentioned it. But it is an amazing thing where you go from being Joe Schmo off the street one day to literally the next day becoming a, a minister. And in this context, in terms of being charged with a capital programme, you know, you've got a 12 billion spend a year, which is obviously a major, major money. And so it's, it's a steep learning curve. I mean, there's, you know, there, there, there's no other way to describe it. And I think first off, just trying to make sure that, you know, I'd often ask the questions from the same club that, you know, do you really need a decision on this now? Because, you know, I hate having to shoot from the hip. You know, I'm very much date-strewn in terms of my business background and everything. And so making sure that we're making good decisions, especially around capital programs where you are talking about long-term decisions, if we don't have to make a decision immediately, let's get the proper data and analysis about it. And so then in terms of the lessons learned, I mean, the first thing again is that I think often the word national in national health service is quite a misnomer in that I see a lot of very kind of individualised separate trusts and so a lot of what we're trying to do is, uh, particularly in capital space, is, is is bring it into one coherent program. I know that we'll talk a lot more about the new hospital program later on. But, you know, we had a system whereby every time we were building a hospital, we were designing a different hospital with a different approach. You know, we've got crazy numbers like, um, you know, trivia question for you. You know, how many different types of um, doors do you think we have in, in, in the NHS? I mean, the number is 27,000. <laughs> wow. I know, 27,000. I'm finding out um, maybe next time I'm on, I'll be able to let you know how many different types of lucids we have. <laughs> basically, what we have is a system of people developing things, you know, with best of intentions instead of one uniform program. And so what I'm trying to do 
in terms of the capital program and particularly around the new hostel program is really just to try and develop process of standardization that we're using common parts common designs we're learning from best practice so that we can just like you do in any business really try and understand what works well and then roll it out as widely as possible so um, the capital program the issues with the capital program there are a number of different sets of issues one is obviously the quantum and as you would expect me to say running the organization running the confed you know we we wish there was a lot more money available given the size of the capital backlog in the health service then there's a question of well who decides how how much is it centrally determined the capital program how much can be devolved for example to to systems and then there's the question that you've just focused on nick which is okay well we, we know the quantum we we know where the decisions are made but nevertheless how do we spend that how do we procure and spend that money effectively i mean what what's the relationship between those issues because of course we tend to focus on the issue of the quantum but you're focusing on the issue of how we get kind of value for, for money do you think that if we did things much better it could make a difference to the fact that there isn't as much money as any of us might wish there was yes i mean i mean the evidence of standardization and again this isn't the dh in department of health won't be the first to do this we've had a similar program going in things like prisons and if you can go for a standardization approach then you start to get 20 to 25 percent savings um you know as you get the economies of scale going so Again, just to give you an example, if you think about a, a patient room bedroom, normally if it's not standardised and it's a different design, yeah, you will need a plaster, you need a plumber, you'll need an electrician, you need someone to do the gas and air, you'll need someone to do the tiling. Whereas if you can have a standardised room, effectively you can t- construct that all off-site and just put it in as a module. Much, much cheaper, faster to build as well. So those are some of the things I'm talking about. Now you're right though in terms of you've got to get the mix between allowing local systems to prioritise their capital spend and where to put it and where things are best done as part of a national programme. And you know, I'm definitely not saying that one size fits all will always be the case. But it's learning the difference between the two as a good way to, one, get the most bangs for your buck, as you say, but to actually make sure that you know when you are building things, you're getting constructors as quickly as possible because I freely accept two things. One, we are spending more money than ever on a capital program. It's about 12 billion a year. But at the same time, I'm very aware of just how much needs to be spent as well. Um, and, you know, the, the scale of the task that we're talking about because the estate is massive and these are things that unfortunately take a number of years to resolve. Y- yes, absolutely. And what about the kind of the speed. I mean, the other issue that people raise is just how long it takes to get capital schemes approved. Could standardisation, do you think, help with that? Yes, but also we've got our own approval process whereby, you know, that takes far too long. So, you know, it's one of these systems that probably over time sets, but also, you know, the trust might have their own sign-off process, then NHS has, and Department of Health has then the Treasury has, and you put those all on top of each other. And, you know, as I've tried to look at how long it takes to build a new hospital, typically 11 years from start to finish. And we're easily spend about four years of those in approval processes. So what I've tried to do as an example is, you know, I found out that 
they have what's called a joint investment committee in the Department of Health with the NHS. And that would meet, you know, 12 or 16 weeks before the decision came to me. So I said, well, look, you know, I, I, I will quite happily sit on that joint investment committee. You know, I will, I value the comments anyway of the rest of the team on it all. And hopefully they value my comments and we can take 12 to 16 weeks out of the timeline straight away and probably make better decisions. You know, same for hopefully cabinet office and treasury colleagues in terms of involving them all in that loop together. So really trying to streamline that, but also, and then this is particularly pertinent to the RAF hospitals. We know that we've got to build those by 2030. We know we haven't got a choice. You know, we know that if they're not built by then, we're having to decommission hospitals. So, yeah, especially the five new ones that come into this. If we take three, four years going through an approval process before we even start building, we're just not going to get there. So we have to streamline that process. That does candidly take some people outside their comfort zone because, you know, sometimes you might be making decisions with less of the data there. But what I'm trying to do in all of this, and I say to them all the time, is look, you've got to weigh up the risks because you might be making decisions in the approval process with slightly less information. However, if we go on the, the status quo, these hospitals won't be delivered in time for 2030. So personally, I feel that there's a greater risk in terms of uh, the approvals process and, and those delays now. Yet there's a greater risk of being late rather than streamlining those decisions, saying that we don't need to do so many outline business cases, then strategic business cases, then fine business cases. We can consolidate those so we get a much quicker approvals process. Yeah, and that all sounds really sensible and to be and to be welcomed but you've been in post for a, a year and the issues of the state of the NHS estate go back you know many many years but in the new hospital program particularly with the impact of RAC there are hospitals that thought they were going to get a rebuild a new hospital significant investment and who are not going to have that now for much longer. And you must have been around the estate. You must have seen the condition that some of these kind of hospitals are in, ones that will not now be rebuilt. How aware do you think folk in Whitehall and the Treasury, number 10, are of the kind of urgency for capital investment in the health service? I mean, it is difficult. I probably, in the last year, I don't know the exact number, probably listed 30, 40 different hospitals just because it's only when you get around and see a place that you really understand the nature of what you're facing. And we know there are many, many examples where we need the work done. And clearly, we had to then suddenly prioritise, as you say, the, the RAF hospitals and the Treasury, not unreasonably, were saying, well, that's fine. You know, and to be fair to them and Cabinet Office and, and Number 10, they got in a heartbeat that we had to prioritise the RAC. So there was never any hesitation about putting them first. Their question always was, well, okay, then if you're putting them first, clearly others have got to be moved to the right. And how are you going to manage that process? And that's where I think one of the things which isn't written about a lot, but I think is a very positive development, is actually we've got agreement now of five-year capital cycles. So effectively, we've got from 2030 to 2035, now another five-year cycle in 2035 to 40, another cycle whereby those that you know, had to be moved to the right in terms of us not being able to do it in this first phase to 2030 will come in the 2030 to 2035. 
and a general agreement, a bit like the Department for Transport has in terms of these five-year uh, capital and planning cycles. This now is a long-term program, which I think is a very welcome development. At the same time, I do recognise exactly what you were just saying, that there were some hospital in some places that they were hoping that they might have you know, be part of the new hospital program to 2030, which now might be moved out to um, 2030 to 35 cycle, at which point that does mean that there's some investment that needs to be done now in terms of some shorter term work to make up the very worst affected parts of it all. And it comes back again to you know making sure we're very strict in terms of our prioritisation, understanding the situation there. I've said to all the team in the hospitals, understand exactly the nature of what we've got here, where there are critical risk items, make sure that we're on top of them. Not an easy situation. I, this issue is built up over decades. But something which hopefully a systematic program bit by bit by bit over the years, we can we can really be seen to be getting on top of it. And th- those changes that you've described, that move to that kind of five-year cycle, um, we were at the Confederation, we kind of acted with the department as a secretariat for the Hewitt Review. And one of Hewitt's recommendations was a kind of review of the capital regime. So are there other changes which you're exploring which you think need to be made to the NHS's capital program I'm particularly interested in given your private sector background is there more that we can do to encourage a more entrepreneurial approach from systems and trusts about how it is they use their assets to be able to you know I don't know whether it's disposal of land or whatever ways in which they might be able to to themselves be able to to increase the investment they can make Absolutely. I mean, the, the one other part of my background, which she didn't put in the introduction, is I was uh, used to be chair of London Continental Railways, which does all the regeneration rail stations. So we did King's Cross years ago. We did the Stratford Olympic site. We've got a huge project now in Manchester Mayfield. And actually, we made them into a top 10 house builder. A very, very simple program. You know, if you think of any of those train stations that we're all very familiar with, you take the car park around them, you build a multi-storey on a third of the land, and you free up two-thirds of the land for housing. And you can put between 100 and 150 homes on that piece and desperately find land for housing. I'm very keen that we do something similar in the... Um, we're using our hospital estates. We all know the challenges of recruiting staff and retaining staff. And housing can be a, you know, a key help in that, particularly if you may, you're asking people to move to a different part of the country to take up work at a hospital or even from overseas. Being able to give them accommodation so that they can get their feet under the table in a new job in a new place, I think is, is key in terms of recruitment and retention. And so what I've been working with with our um, dealer colleagues and housing associations, you know, a very simple thing about you know, where we do have space on a hospital estate, we say to the, a local housing association, look, we will offer you the land at a pepcom rent in return for you building there and giving us a nomination agreement so we can use it to put our key workers in. And also the fact, you know, if I use an example, let's say that the construction cost of a house is 100000 and the land value is 50000 and we're giving them a pepcom rent on land value, then they only need to get their return on the rent on the 100,000 rather than 150,000. So immediately that gives you a third discount, so to speak, on the on the rent that they need to charge. 
And the thing that's really valuable going back, particularly about your question is that then that capital that comes out of the housing associations, capital limits, not the hospitals. And we've got treasury signed up to the principal of that. And we're actually doing a pilot program at the moment in North Bristol to absolutely prove the case. But there I see an opportunity where we've seen loads of hospitalist estates where they have got space in them, where if we can work with a housing association to put homes for our key workers on them using their capital, not ours, then that's a great way to create a win-win situation. I think there's similar examples on putting solar panel on roofs or using LED lighting, whereby the sorts of returns that you'll get there, you can easily finance from from the private sector. So again, I think if we were to put solar panels on all our roofs, it costs us about three hundred million pounds, and we'd save you know roughly fifty million a year. So you know you're getting a fifteen percent plus type yield out of that, which again, candidly, with our limits, it might be hard to find three hundred million out of our budget. But you know you can find EdSAP with those sorts of returns and create a win-win situation. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I think many of our members will be very interested in the possibilities that exist there. And of course, ICS's the fourth their fourth objective is around the NHS's kind of economic and social and environmental uh, impact. So there's a kind of win-win there. Do you think? I mean, a more general point: Do you think we underestimate the role that health investment has in economic regeneration? We tend to think about. You know, there are bits of government that are around economic growth and there are bits of government that are about spending and health is in the latter category. But actually, in all sorts of ways, health investment can contribute to the economy, can't it? Definitely. And I think there's a general understanding that we need to get upstream of the problems in terms of the prevention agenda. I mean, we know that hospitals often become almost the treatment place of the last resort because people will go to A&E at a lot of the time actually they don't need to be at A&E but they went there because you know they felt that they couldn't get you know a GP appointment for instance or they're fit to be discharged the 13% or so but they haven't been discharged because you know we're trying to find social care places so it is as you say a whole system program and um, yeah that's why we see the ICS review as so important and that does have as you say a much wider social and economic impact you know, I mean, I've seen fantastic examples. I was in Red Hill GP surgery the other day where they look at their so-called frequent flyers who are spending the most time, you know, needing hospital treatment and saying, what can they do in terms of prevention to try and avoid that happening? And, uh, you know, I'm making a huge impact on that, which of course is better for them, better for their lifestyles, but as you say, better for the economy because those people can be far more productive. I mean, in terms of a capital initiative we've got now these mobile lung cancer screening program whereby typically unfortunately we don't you know something like 60 percent or so people aren't detected with lung cancer until they're at stage four historically and unfortunately then it's often too late with these mobile screening centers that are going into the areas where you know that there's most need we're now picking up something like two-thirds at stage one and two where you can treat it and you're fine. And obviously that's much better in terms of healthy outcomes, but that's also, of course, much better in terms of those people being able to return to the workforce and become productive members of the economy. So, you know, that that's where I see everything that the you were working with, Patricia, on, on her review, on, you know, how you can create whole systems 
solutions completely agree with what we're trying to do there and you know it just has to be the direction of travel we go in yeah because it's interesting it's a final question on capital nick but it's interesting that whenever we talk about capital you and i've been guilty of this ourselves in this conversation we tend to just talk about hospitals but actually a huge proportion of our primary estate isn't fit for purpose I know that colleagues in mental health feel that mental health often is quite low down the list and the mental health estate's very poor. We want to move more investment into the community, into community settings, into health on the high street, for example. So, you know, it is important, isn't it, when we talk about capital, that that we're not just talking about hospitals and also that we avoid the, the danger that we do sink an enormous amount of money into hospitals and that actually reinforces a model of care that we're trying to get away from. That's absolutely right. You know, we all know the old saying that, you know, it's the, what is it, squeaky wheel that gets, you know, the oil on it all. And that is a bit in terms of, you know, the hospitals, they are obviously the most visible manifestation of the health service. And so naturally, in terms of all of our attention and spend, that's often where it goes. But it, it, it is those initiatives, um, either upstream or downstream, again, on where many hospital visits I found that in one of the hospitals, they just put in a physiotherapy space where they were then, as a matter of general practice, giving all patients over a certain age an hour or so physio a day. And in terms of their ability to then get home earlier and be fitter in there and needing less support, avoiding social care altogether, it just had a huge impact, absolutely massive. So, yeah, I think trying to look across the system, you know, where we can get upstream of the problem or or ease the problem downstream, that's got to be the way forward, as you say. I want to turn now to digital and to technology. Now, you, you know, your background as a, a, you know, as a business leader, entrepreneur, you know, you've been a digital pioneer. So what's, first of all, let's just start with your, your interpretation of why things are so difficult in the health service. You know, I think it's a, almost everybody would agree that the pace of digital rollout has not been what we would want it to be that i mean i guess the positive way to put it is that fame that the cliche the future is out there but it's just very unevenly distributed in terms of good practice why do you think we are in the situation we're in i think we have it, it seems the, the process that i was talking about before often about the capital spend where you get layer and layer of approval and decision making and i think generally we've got ourselves into a situation whereby we're more and more risk adverse generally about making decisions i mean it's the old saying you know nowhere ever got sacked by an ibm and and there's a lot of that where people just don't want to um step out and run that risk and so you know you have all sorts of committees and consultants and processes and it becomes very very unwieldy and we see situations where we know we can do it and do it quickly. Obviously, that happened a lot during COVID, but you've got situations like Joe Harrison, who um, runs Milton Keynes Hospital. He's a real pioneer. He's really passionate about digital. And you go there, and it's amazing some of the things they've done there. I mean, Miles Scott in Maidstone, he's put in what I call a flight control system, which is looking at incoming ambulances and incoming demand. And you can see a projection on there's like a flight control system where you can see that they know every bed in the hospital and they can see if they've got an incoming where those people that most likely need to be ready to 
discharge them. And then if they are ready to discharge them, they've got a, a process in place immediately, which makes sure they've got their prescriptions ready, they've got transport ready, they've got porters ready to clean the bed and transport them. And it's all there through marginal gains. You know, I call it like the Team Sky cycling approach, whereby it's just one or two percent gains in every little bit of process. But you put them all together and they're significant. And so, so as you say, there are those examples of those exemplars, but it's making sure that we can roll those out across the system. We've been trying to do that as really giving support from the centre. I think we've got some good examples of that. I think the electronic bed records and patient management, that is coming in absolutely, as you say. I think it is taking too long, but it is getting there. The other thing I think which will make a massive difference in the theme of a lot we're talking about is actually trying to put looking at the solutions at an individual or local level. We've got a series of big functionality enhancements to the app just coming up, which I think will make a huge difference. When you think about how um, our lives have changed in terms of banking and retail and media consumption with use of apps, now your ability to make the GP appointment or your pharmacy first point is that that's, if that's the better solution for the condition you've got, you know, being navigated to the right place in the first place, be reminded of that appointment on your calendar so you reduce the number of do not attends, be able to get your, your results on your phone and see your patient records so you can do your own type of research um, and, and really take control of your own health in all of that. If you do need hospital treatment, being able to see what the waiting times are um, in a patient choice initiative so you can see where can I get my treatment done in the quickest and, and most efficient. And for putting that sort of information and that sort of power in the hands of the, the user, the patient in this case, I think that's how we can really use technology to make massive differences. You know, that's interesting. And obviously, once again, and I'm not going to labour this point, but but there is an issue about about sustained investment we have had kind of stop start investment in digital infrastructure as well but some of the work we've done nick i'd be really interested in your perspective on this has has come up with what you might call i don't know the innovation tragedy or the innovation dilemma and that's this and it doesn't just apply to digital it applies to things like innovative uh, innovative medicines and that is that that in a sense both our private sector partners and to an extent government, government officials and ministers, want things to happen at scale. And if they're really going to make a difference, they do need to happen at scale. And the economics demands action happens at scale. But yet what we find when we look at what works on the ground again and again and again is that the best solutions, the ones that have the most impact, are the ones that are designed very much around the particular local circumstances, local population. Clinical enthusiasm is absolutely critical to this. Sometimes the reason that national programmes break down is that in the pilot you've got enthusiastic clinicians and then you roll it out. To, to clinicians who aren't so enthusiastic they've got other priorities so i just enjoy, do you have a kind of insight into how we manage this kind of innovation paradox that on the one hand we need to scale things up and on the other hand they've got to be designed to fit local circumstances no you're absolutely right and i think actually all we've talked about that is one of the toughest things i've seen i mean the old joke goes that you know the nhs have got more pilots than british airways but it's taking those pilots and scaling them off is the challenge and we see local hostels and right down to the clinician level who are quite fiercely independent. And that's where you have the problem in terms of the adoption. 
I think there are things that we're trying to do from the, in the center. You know, I'm exaggerating slightly to make a point, but it's been the case in the past whereby we've had one place where, you know, we've, we've helped get that innovation going and it really works in one place. And then we say, we've proven the case. And then they say, well, great, how do I expand this? And we say, well, here's a telephone directory of 200 trusts. Good luck. Again, I'm exaggerating slightly to make a point, but effectively what we're trying to do now is actually put in place much more of a central buying setup whereby we are able to roll those products out according to that. And it's very interesting. I was actually in Boston just last week to try and absolutely learn some of the lessons that we see because obviously Boston, you've got a fantastic ecosystem of the Harvards and the MITs of the world and then the top hospitals in terms of the mass generals and the you know, Boston Children Hospital and the entrepreneurial flair and, and venture capital where they are really, they see, they really try and foster innovation and then the scared out and roll, roll out from there and what we can learn from that. And a lot of it, I think we are very good at the, as you say, at the innovation. I think we can do some more to foster some of those partnerships between the clinicians and the hospitals and teaching hospitals and sometimes the local venture capital partners. But actually the scale out and adoption across the system is the real challenge. And, you know, we've got some good examples that we're starting to get now where we've got things such as the AI delivery platform where, um, you know, you've got things like Brainomics, which is really improving the stroke treatment. And, you know, we're getting platforms where we can effectively roll those out across the board um so there are bits we're doing there but i would say of everything we've talked about that's the one now that i'm really trying to focus on to to improve because that is quite a challenge yeah we're, we're in conversation with a leading university that would bring other universities to the table and also commercial partners to think about whether we can create a kind of capacity between our members academia commercial sectors to think about this rollout challenge and how it is we can help to spread innovation more effectively so maybe that's a future conversation for us yes love that a couple of kind of final questions i know you, you know we're going to be careful because of the commercial sensitivities here but but tell me what your hopes are for the national federated data platform how, how do you think that's going to turn the dial well I, and again i i don't know if you've seen i'm sure you probably have some of the things that chelsea and westminster in particular have been doing in this space and yeah, whenever they show it to me, in some ways, the great news is it's so simple. The f- slightly frustrating thing is it's so simple. Why haven't we done this before? If you know what I mean, in terms of, you know, I just, they, they show me what they do and say, well, look, these are all our patients here. And this is what this person is suffering from. And this is what we're going to do. And we're going to book them into this slot. And we're going to immediately have the follow-up action. And the appointments get fixed. And the communication goes out. And this is how we get keep track of it all. And now we're going to put them into the theatre and this is how we get the utilisation. And, you know, you, you just see it and it's just like, oh, that's great. But this is, you know, pretty darn simple. But then they talk about what happened before where they had spreadsheets and bits of paper and you could just see how these things got lost. So at the basic level, I'm just amazed by the simplicity of just having all the information in one place. And just the ability to make sure that people are captured, you knew exactly what needed to be done. As I say, you book your points from there and it gets followed right the way through. And, you know, Chelsea and Westminster were 
able to talk about how they'd increased utilization of their theatres by 20-30%, how they actually found that as they went through this process, they cleaned up a lot of the database where they saw that actually there were duplications or people that didn't need treatments anymore. So I think that can really make a massive difference on their whole waiting list electives. And then you've got other examples of other hospitals that have used it to really get a quicker discharge out and so really reduce the so-called bed blocking from it all. So what I see most of all is that, yeah, and this is what I see very much the job of the centre, is that, you know, we provide the platforms. So we provide this federated data platform from which clinicians and hospitals will develop the innovation. And so that discharge model that I was talking about, that was developed, I think it was Stoke Hospital, apologies if I've got that wrong, but that was developed by one of the local hospitals using that platform data. As I say, Chelsea and Westminster really forged forward from that. So it's giving that platform common data from which people will then be able to develop the services. And this is where, amongst all the challenges of that we know we have, where I see you know the, the real grounds for optimism. Again, when I was in Boston just last week, they were saying, look, you don't realise the power that you have in terms of your data. There was one company there that had raised $250 million to invest in using 9 million hospital records of just a single health system. And, you know, just the hospitals. And they said, look, you've got 50 million patient records and not just secondary care, but primary care as well. And you can link them all together through the NHS number. Yes, it will be messy linking them all together. We're not saying it's easy in terms of cleaning up the data. But they were saying, look, think of dementia as it all. You know, our problem about dementia is that we are really shooting the dark in terms of the cures. You know, when we know what we're going after, like we did with COVID, we were able to target something very, very quickly. Trouble about dementia is we don't really know the causes. But when you think about your data... And the fact that it's longitudinal, you know, you can take people who are suffering from dementia when they're, you know, 75, 80, and look back at their GP records when they're in their 50s and 60s and see, are there, you know, are there linkages through all that at AI? And they will come up with patterns that we just haven't seen um, to see, you know, are there some early warning signs that we can then really set our researchers going after? So to me, that's, you know, that our whole data platforms, that's exciting in terms of just the A, the, the base management of patients through the, in the navigating through the health system, but B, just being able to use them to really pioneer new areas of um, research and development. Well, Nick, we're really grateful to you for giving so much time to us. And I'm just going to ask you one final question before I, I, I let you go back to your ministerial duties. And that, you know, you've talked a lot about a kind of incremental agile approach to change and I, I always think that that there are two things we have to do together which involve different kinds of ways of thinking one is that we need to try to think like a whole system because our health system is complex and interrelated and if you try to achieve change in one part you need to think about what the ramifications are across the whole system so you need to reimagine the system but then you need to adopt it exactly as you've said this very kind of entrepreneurial agile approach to change because the world is unpredictable change is unpredictable but just in in that if i was to say to you just give me one or two thoughts about the health service of 
I don't know, they might be there in, say, 15, 20 years. What do you think are the things that are most fundamentally going to change about health over, over the next generation? So I really think it will be the use of, first thing, the people using the app to navigate their whole approach and taking control of their health. And again, being able to show, you know, because the data will exist there and they will look at my, they will be able to look at my background, look at my DNA background, look at my patient records, look at my lifestyle factors, you know, how much I'm drinking, whether I'm smoking, what I'm eating, and be able to start to prescribe my own individualized screening program and course of action. Now, a lot of the time, people won't take that up and that's their choice. But a lot of the time, you know, you give those people the pointers and I think you would just see, I think we're seeing a shift for, away from a health system which, you know, 40, 50 years ago, those very much the doctor knows best and when there was something wrong, you would turn up the doctor, you were told what treatment you needed for cure and off you went to actually very much, a, you know, much more active management of our own health where we know more about our own bodies and our health backed up by having the technology to kind of support us in that and we're taking a much more active participation in in our health in terms of prevention early diagnosis and 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 treatment and armed with that you know i think that will fundamentally change the way that health is set up to support around it rather than being based around hospitals and treatment very much around the care of the whole patient you know i think that's the journey that we're going on and that's where i have to say as a minister sometimes some very very hard moments you know this is by far the hardest thing i've done in my life where it really is difficult in terms of all the challenges you're trying to face when you see those kind of the sunny uplands so to speak that sort of healthcare for the future, I, you know, I think is, you know, that's the sort of thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. And I hope that we look back in 15, 20 years and say that the investments we're putting now in terms of, you know, the app and the digital platform and technology, as well as the new hostel program, I hope that we're really setting the foundations down for what will be that, that, that future. Well, it's great to end on a hopeful uh, note. So, uh, uh, Nick, thanks for the work that you do as a health minister, and thanks so much for joining us on Health on the Line. Well, thanks for listening to Health on the Line, and do listen out for future episodes. And if you enjoyed the program, please just take five seconds to leave a rating or a few more seconds to leave a review uh, on your podcast platform. It really does help to get more people to listen. Have a good week.